Chapter Eighteen of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Grey. Chapter Eighteen. Oldring's Nell. Some forty hours or more later, Venters created a commotion in Cottonwoods by riding down the main street on Black Star and leading Bells and Knight. He had come upon Bells grazing near the body of a dead rustler, the only incident of his quick ride into the village. Nothing was farther from Venters' mind than bravado. No thought came to him of the defiance and boldness of riding Jane Witherstein's racers straight into the arch-plotter's stronghold. He wanted men to see the famous Arabians. He wanted men to see them dirty and dusty, bearing all the signs of having been driven to their limit. He wanted men to see and to know that the thieves who had ridden them out into the sage had not ridden them back. Venters had come for that, and for more. He wanted to meet Tall face to face. If not Tall, then dire. If not dire, then anyone in the secret of these master conspirators. Such was Venters' passion. The meeting with the rustlers, the unprovoked attack upon him, the spilling of blood, the recognition of Jerry Card, and the horses, the race, and that last plunge of mad wrangle, all these things, fuel on fuel to the smouldering fire, had kindled and swelled and leaped into living flame. He could have shot Dyer in the midst of his religious services at the altar. He could have killed Tull in front of wives and babes. He walked the three racers down the broad, green-bordered village road. He heard the murmur of running water from Amber Spring. Bitter waters for Jane Witherstein. Men and women stopped to gaze at him and the horses. All knew him. All knew the blacks and the bay. As well as if it had been spoken, Venters read in the faces of men the intelligence that Jane Witherstein's Arabians had been known to have been stolen. Venters reined in and halted before Dyer's residence. It was a low, long, stone structure resembling Witherstein House. The spacious front yard was green and luxuriant with grass and flowers. Gravel walks led to the huge porch. A well-trimmed hedge of purple sage separated the yard from the church grounds. Birds sang in the trees. Water flowed musically along the walks, and there were glad, careless shouts of children. For Venters, the beauty of this home, and the serenity and its apparent happiness, all turned red and black. For Venters, a shade overspread the lawn, the flowers, the old vine-clad stone house. In the music of the singing birds, in the murmur of the running water, he heard an ominous sound. Quiet beauty, sweet music, innocent laughter. By what monstrous abortion of fate did these abide in the shadow of Dyer? Venters rode on and stopped before Tull's cottage. Women stared at him with white faces, and then flew from the porch. Tull himself appeared at the door, bent low, craning his neck. His dark face flashed out of sight. The door banged. A heavy bar dropped with a hollow sound. Then Venters shook Blackstar's bridle, and, sharply trotting, led the other horses to the center of the village. Here at the intersecting streets and in front of the stores he halted once more. The usual lounging atmosphere of that prominent corner was not now in evidence. Riders and ranchers and villagers broke up what must have been absorbing conversation. There was a rush of many feet, and then the walk was lined with faces. Venter's glance swept down the line of silent, stone-faced men. He recognized many riders and villagers, but none of those he had hoped to meet. There was no expression in the faces turned toward him. All of them knew him, 
most were inimical, but there were few who were not burning with curiosity and wonder in regard to the return of Jane Witherstein's racers. Yet all were silent. Here were their familiar characteristics, masked feeling, strange secretiveness, expressionless expression of mystery and hidden power. "'Has anybody here seen Jerry Card?' queried Venters, in a loud voice. In reply there came not one word, not a nod or shake of head, not so much as dropping eye or twitching lip, nothing but a quiet, stony stare. "'Been under the knife? You've a fine knife-wielder here, one tall, I believe. Maybe you've all had your tongues cut out?' This passionate sarcasm of Venters brought no response, and the stony calm was as oil on the fire within him. "'I see some of you pack guns, too,' he added, in biting scorn. In the long, tense pause, strung keenly as a tight wire, he sat motionless on Black Star. "'All right,' he went on. "'Then let some of you take this message to Tull. Tell him I've seen Jerry Card. Tell him Jerry Card will never return.' Thereupon, in the same dead calm, Venters backed Black Star away from the curb, into the street, and out of range. He was ready now to ride up to Witherstein House and turn the racers over to Jane. "'Hello, Venters,' a familiar voice cried, hoarsely, and he saw a man running toward him. It was the rider Judkins who came up and gripped Venters' hand. "'Venters, I could have dropped when I seen them horses, but that sight ain't a marker to the looks of you. What's wrong? Have you gone crazy? You must be crazy to ride in here this way, with them horses, talking that way about Tull and Jerry Card.' "'Judd, I'm not crazy, only mad, clean through,' replied Venters. "'Mad, now, Burn, I'm glad to hear some of your old self in your voice, "'for when you come up you look like the corpse of a dead rider with fire for eyes. "'You had that crowd too stiff for throwing guns. "'Come, we've got to have a talk. Let's go up the lane. We ain't much safe here.' "'Judkins mounted bells and rode with Venters up to the cottonwood grove.' Here they dismounted and went among the trees. "'Let's hear from you first, said Judkins. "'You fetched back them hosses. That is the trick. And, of course, you got Jerry the same as you got Horn.' "'Horn?' "'Sure. He was found dead yesterday, all chewed by coyotes, and he'd been shot plumb center. "'Where was he found?' "'At the split down the trail. You know where Old Ring's cattle trail runs off north from the trail to the pass.' "'That's where I met Jerry and the rustlers. "'What was Horn doing with them? "'I thought Horn was an honest cattleman.' "'Lord, Byrne, don't ask me that. "'I'm all muddled now, trying to figure things.' Venters told of the fight and the race with Jerry Card, and its tragic conclusion. "'I note it. "'I note all along that Wrangle was the best hoss,' exclaimed Judkins, "'with his lean face working and his eyes lighting. "'That was a race.' "'Lord, I'd like to have seen Wrangle jump the cliff with Jerry. "'And that was good-bye to the grandest hoss and rider ever on the sage. "'But, Fern, after you got the hosses, "'why'd you want to bolt right in Tull's face?' "'I want him to know. "'And if I can get to him, I'll—' "'You can't get near Tull,' interrupted Judkins. "'That vigilante bunch have taken to be in bodyguard for Tull, and Dyer, too.' "'Hasn't Lassiter made a break yet?' inquired Venters, curiously. "'Naw,' replied Judkins scornfully. "'Jane turned his head. "'He's mad in love over her, follows her like a dog. "'He ain't no more Lassiter. "'He's lost his nerve, 
He doesn't look like the same feller. It's village talk. Everybody knows it. He hasn't thrown a gun, and he won't. Judd, I'll bet he does, replied Venters earnestly. Remember what I say. This Lassiter is something more than a gunman. Judd, he's big. He's great. I feel that in him. God help Tull and Dyer when Lassiter does go after them, for horses and riders and stone walls won't save them. Well, have it your way, Byrne. I hope you're right. Naturally, I've been some sore on Lassiter for getting soft, but I ain't denying his nerve, or whatever's great in him, that sort of paralyzes people. No later than this morning I seen him sauntering down the lane, quiet and slow, and like his guns he comes black. Black, that's Lassiter. Well, the crowd on the corner never batted an eye, and I'll gamble my hoss that there wasn't one who had a heartbeat till Lassiter got by. He went in Snell's saloon, and as there wasn't no gunplay, I had to go in, too. And there, darn my pictures, if Lassiter wasn't standing to the bar, drinking and talking with Aldrin. Aldring, whispered Venters. His voice, as all fire and pulse within him, seemed to freeze. "'Let go my arm!' exclaimed Judkins. "'That's my bad arm.' "'Sure it was Aldrin. "'What the hell's wrong with you, anyway? "'Venters, I tell you something's wrong. "'You're whiter than a sheet. "'You can't be scared of the rustler. "'I don't believe you've got a scare in you. "'Well, now, just let me talk. "'You know I like to talk, "'and if I'm slow, I'll allus get there sometime. "'As I said, Lassiter was talking chummy with Aldrin. "'There wasn't no hard feelings, "'and the gang wasn't paying no particular attention. "'But like a cat watching a mouse, "'I had my eyes on them two fellers.' It was strange to me, that confab. I'm getting to think a lot for a feller who doesn't know much. There's been some queer deals lately, and this seemed to me the queerest. These men stood to the bar alone, and so close their big gun-hilts butted together. I seen Aldrin was some surprised at first, and Lassiter was cool as ice. They talked, and presently, at something Lassiter said, the rustler bawled out a curse, and then he just fell up against the bar and sagged there. The gang in the saloon looked around and laughed, and that's about all. Finally Aldrin turned, and it was easy to see something had shook him. Yes, sir, that big rustler, you know he's as broad as he is long, and the powerfulest build of a man. Yes, sir, the nerve had been taken out of him. Then, after a little, he began to talk, and said a lot to Lassiter. And by and by it didn't take much of an eye to see that Lassiter was getting hit hard. I never seen him any way but cooler in ice till then. He seemed to be hit harder than Aldrin, only he didn't roar out that way. He just kind of sunk in and looked and looked, and he didn't see a living soul in that saloon. Then he sort of come to, and shaken hands, mind you, shaken hands with Aldrin, he went out. Couldn't help thinking how easy even a boy could have dropped the great gunman then. Well, the rustler stood at the bar for a long time, and he was seeing things far off, too. Then he come to and roared for whiskey, and gulped a drink that was big enough to drown me. "'Is Old Ring here now?' whispered Venters. He could not speak above a whisper. Judkin's story had been meaningless to him. "'He's at Snell's yet. Burn, I haven't told you that the rustlers have been raising hell.' They shot up Stone Bridge and Glaze, and for three days they've been here drinking and gambling and throwing of gold. These rustlers have a pile of gold. If it was gold dust or nugget gold, I'd have reason to think. But it's new coin gold, as if it had just come from the United States Treasury. And the coin's genuine. That's all been proved. The truth is, Aldrin's on a rampage. 
A while back he lost his masked rider, and they say he's wild about that. I'm wondering if Lassiter could have told the rustler anything about that little masked, hard-riding devil. Ride? He was most as good as Jerry Card. And, Byrne, I've been wondering if you know— Judkins, you're a good fellow, interrupted Venters. Some day I'll tell you a story. I've no time now. Take the horses to Jane. Judkins stared, and then, muttering to himself, he mounted Bells, and stared again at Venters, and then, leading the other horses, he rode into the grove and disappeared. Once, long before, on the night Venters had carried Bess through the canyon and up into Surprise Valley, he had experienced the strangeness of faculties singularly, tinglingly acute, and now the same sensation recurred. But it was different in that he felt cold, frozen, mechanical, incapable of free thought, and all about him seemed unreal, aloof, remote. He hid his rifle in the sage, marking its exact location with extreme care. Then he faced down the lane and strode toward the center of the village. Perceptions flashed upon him, the faint, cold touch of the breeze, a cold, silvery tinkle of flowing water, a cold sun shining out of a cold sky, song of birds and laugh of children, coldly distant. Cold and intangible were all things in earth and heaven. Colder and tighter stretched the skin over his face. Colder and harder grew the polished butts of his guns. Colder and steadier became his hands as he wiped the clammy sweat from his face or reached low to his gun sheaths. Men meeting him in the walk gave him wide berth. In front of Bevan's store a crowd melted apart for his passage, and their faces and whispers were faces and whispers of a dream. He turned a corner to meet Tull face to face, eye to eye. As once before he had seen this man pale to a ghastly, livid white, so again he saw the change. Tull stopped in his tracks, with right hand raised and shaking. Suddenly it dropped, and he seemed to glide aside, to pass out of Venter's sight. Next he saw many horses with bridles down, all clean-limbed dark bays or blacks, rustlers' horses. Loud voices and boisterous laughter, rattle of dice and scrape of chair and clink of gold, burst in mingled din from an open doorway. He stepped inside. With the sight of smoke-hazed room and drinking, cursing, gambling, dark-visaged men, reality once more dawned upon Venters. His entrance had been unnoticed, and he bent his gaze upon the drinkers at the bar. Dark-clothed, dark-faced men they all were, burned by the sun, bow-legged, as were most riders of the sage, but neither lean nor gaunt. Then Venters' gaze passed to the tables, and swiftly it swept over the hard-featured gamesters to alight upon the huge, shaggy, black head of the rustler chief. "'Oldring!' he cried, and to him his voice seemed to split a bell in his ears. It stilled the din. That silence suddenly broke to the scrape and crash of Oldring's chair as he rose, and then, while he passed, a great gloomy figure, again the thronged room stilled in silence yet deeper." "'Aldring, a word with you,' continued Venters. "'Ho, what's this?' boomed Aldring in frowning scrutiny. "'Come outside alone. A word for you, from your masked rider.' Aldring kicked a chair out of his way and lunged forward with a stamp of heavy boot that jarred the floor. He waved down his muttering, rising men. Venters backed out of the door and waited, hearing, as no sound had ever before struck into his soul, the rapid, heavy steps of the rustler. 
Aldring appeared, and Venters had one glimpse of his great breadth and bulk, his gold-buckled belt with hanging guns, his high-top boots with gold spurs. In that moment Venters had a strange, unintelligible curiosity to see Aldring alive. The rustler's broad brow, his large black eyes, his sweeping beard, as dark as the wing of a raven, his enormous width of shoulder and depth of chest, his whole splendid presence so wonderfully charged with vitality and force and strength, seemed to afford Venters an unutterable fiendish joy, because for that magnificent manhood and life he meant cold and sudden death. Aldring, Bess is alive. But she's dead to you, dead to the life you made her lead, dead as you will be in one second. Swift as lightning, Venters' glance dropped from Aldring's rolling eyes to his hands. One of them, the right, swept out, then toward his gun, and Venters shot him through the heart. Slowly Aldring sank to his knees, and the hand, dragging at the gun, fell away. Venters' strangely acute faculties grasped the meaning of that limp arm, of the swaying hulk, of the gasp and heave, of the quivering beard. But was that awful spirit in the black eyes only one of vitality? Man, why didn't you wait? Bess was... Aldring's whisper died under his beard, and with a heavy lurch he fell forward. Bounding swiftly away, Venters fled around the corner, across the street, and leaping a hedge he ran through yard, orchard, and garden to the sage. Here, under cover of the tall brush, he turned west and ran on to the place where he had hidden his rifle. Securing that, he again set out into a run, and, circling through the sage, came up behind Jane Witherstein's stable and corrals. With laboring, dripping chest, and pain as of a knife thrust in his side, he stopped to regain his breath and while resting his eyes roved around in search of a horse. Doors and windows of the stable were open wide and had a deserted look. One dejected, lonely burrow stood in the near corral. Strange indeed was the silence brooding over the once happy, noisy home of Jane Witherstein's pets. He went into the corral, exercising care to leave no tracks, and led the burrow to the watering trough. Venters, though not thirsty, drank till he could drink no more. Then, leading the burrow over hard ground, he struck into the sage and down the slope. He strode swiftly, turning from time to time to scan the slope for riders. His head just topped the level of sagebrush, and the burrow could not have been seen at all. Slowly the green of cottonwoods sank behind the slope, and at last a wavering line of purple sage met the blue of sky. To avoid being seen, to get away, to hide his trail— these were the sole ideas in his mind as he headed for Deception Pass, and he directed all his acuteness of eye and ear, and the keenness of a rider's judgment for distance and ground, to stern accomplishment of the task. He kept to the sage far to the left of the trail leading into the pass. He walked ten miles and looked back a thousand times. Always the graceful purple wave of sage remained wide and lonely, a clear undotted waste. Coming to a stretch of rocky ground, he took advantage of it to cross the trail, and then continued down on the right. At length he persuaded himself that he would be able to see riders mounted on horses before they could see him on the little burrow, and he rode bareback. Hour by hour the tireless burrow kept to his faithful, steady trot. The sun sank, and the long shadows lengthened down the slope. 
moving veils of purple twilight crept out of the hollows, and, mustering and forming on the levels, soon merged and shaded into night. Venters guided the burrow nearer to the trail, so that he could see its white line from the ridges, and rode on through the hours. Once down in the pass, without leaving a trail, he would hold himself safe for the time being. When late in the night he reached the break in the sage, he sent the burrow down ahead of him, and started an avalanche that all but buried the animal at the bottom of the trail. Bruised and battered as he was, he had a moment's elation, for he had hidden his tracks. Once more he mounted the burrow and rode on. The hour was the blackest of the night when he made the thicket which enclosed his old camp. Here he turned the burrow loose in the grass near the spring, and then lay down on his old bed of leaves. He felt only vaguely, as outside things, the ache and burn and throb of the muscles of his body, but a dammed-up torrent of emotion at last burst its bounds, and the hour that saw his release from immediate action was one that confounded him in the reaction of his spirit. He suffered without understanding why. He caught glimpses into himself, into unlit darkness of soul. The fire that had blistered him, and the cold which had frozen him, now united in one torturing possession of his mind and heart, and, like a fiery steed with ice-shod feet, ranged his being, ran rioting through his blood, trampling the resurging good, dragging ever at the evil. Out of the subsiding chaos came a clear question. What had happened? He had left the valley to go to Cottonwoods. Why? It seemed that he had gone to kill a man, Aldring. The name riveted his consciousness upon the one man of all men upon earth whom he had wanted to meet. He had met the rustler. Venters recalled the smoky haze of the saloon, the dark-visaged men, the huge Aldring. He saw him step out of the door, a splendid specimen of manhood, a handsome giant with purple-black and sweeping beard. He remembered inquisitive gaze of falcon eyes. He heard himself repeating— Aldring, Bess is alive, but she's dead to you. And he felt himself jerk, and his ears throbbed to the thunder of a gun, and he saw the giant sink slowly to his knees. Was that only the vitality of him, that awful light in his eyes? Only the hard-dying life of a tremendously powerful brute? A broken whisper, strange as death. Man, why didn't you wait? Bess was. And Aldring plunged face forward, dead. "'I killed him,' cried Venters, in remembering shock. "'But it wasn't that. "'Ah, the look in his eyes and his whisper!' "'Herein lay the secret that had clamored to him "'through all the tumult and stress of his emotions. "'What a look in the eyes of a man shot through the heart! "'It had been neither hate nor ferocity, "'nor fear of men, nor fear of death. "'It had been no passionate glinting spirit of a fearless foe, "'willing shot for shot, life for life.' but lacking physical power. Distinctly recalled now, never to be forgotten, Venter saw in Aldring's magnificent eyes the rolling of great, glad surprise, softness, love. Then came a shadow and the terrible superhuman striving of his spirit to speak. Aldring, shot through the heart, had fought and forced back death, not for a moment in which to shoot or curse, but to whisper strange words. What words for a dying man to whisper? Why had not Venters waited? For what? That was no plea for life. It was regret that there was not a moment of life left in which to speak. Bess was... Herein lay renewed torture for Venters. 
What had best been to Oldring? The old question, like a spectre, stalked from its grave to haunt him. He had overlooked, he had forgiven, he had loved, and he had forgotten. And now, out of the mystery of a dying man's whisper, rose again that perverse, unsatisfied, jealous uncertainty. Bess had loved that splendid, black-crowned giant. By her own confession she had loved him. An inventor's soul again flamed up the jealous hell. Then into the clamoring hell burst the shot that had killed Aldring, and it rang in a wild, fiendish gladness, a hateful, vengeful joy. That passed to the memory of the love and light in Aldring's eyes, and the mystery in his whisper. So the changing, swaying emotions fluctuated in Venter's heart. This was the climax of his year of suffering, and the crucial struggle of his life. And when the gray dawn came, he rose, a gloomy, almost heart-broken man, but victor over evil passions. He could not change the past, and even if he had not loved Bess with all his soul, he had grown into a man who would not change the future he had planned for her. Only, and once for all, he must know the truth, know the worst, stifle all these insistent doubts and subtle hopes and jealous fancies, and kill the past by knowing truly what Bess had been to Oldring. For that matter he knew— he had always known, but he must hear it spoken. Then, when they had safely gotten out of that wild country to take up a new and an absorbing life, she would forget, she would be happy, and through that, in the years to come, he could not but find life worth living. All day he rode slowly and cautiously up the pass, taking time to peer around corners, to pick out hard ground in grassy patches, and to make sure there was no one in pursuit. In the night sometime he came to the smooth, scrawled rocks dividing the valley, and here set the burrow at liberty. He walked beyond, climbed the slope in the dim, starlit gorge. Then, weary to the point of exhaustion, he crept into a shallow cave and fell asleep. In the morning, when he descended the trail, he found the sun was pouring a golden stream of light through the arch of the great stone bridge. Surprise Valley, like a valley of dreams, lay mystically soft and beautiful, awakening to the golden flood which was rolling away its slumberous bands of mist, brightening its walled faces. While yet far off he discerned Bess moving under the silver spruces, and soon the barking of the dogs told him that they had seen him. He heard the mockingbird singing in the trees, and then the twittering of the quail. Ring and Whitey came bounding toward him, and behind them ran Bess, her hands outstretched. "'Burn, you're back, you're back!' she cried, in joy that rang of her loneliness. "'Yes, I'm back,' he said, as she rushed to meet him. She had reached out for him when suddenly, as she saw him closely, something checked her, and as quickly all her joy fled, and with it her color, leaving her pale and trembling. "'Oh, what's happened?' "'A good deal has happened, Bess. I don't need to tell you what, and I'm played out.' "'worn out in mind more than body. "'Dear, you look strange to me,' faltered Bess. "'Never mind that. I'm all right. "'There's nothing for you to be scared about. "'Things are going to turn out just as we have planned. "'As soon as I'm rested, we'll make a break to get out of the country. "'Only now, right now, I must know the truth about you.' "'Truth about me?' echoed Bess, shrinkingly. "'She seemed to be casting back into her mind for a forgotten key.' Venters himself, as he saw her, received a pang. "'Yes, the truth. "'Bess, don't misunderstand. "'I haven't changed that way. "'I love you still. "'I'll love you more afterward. 
Life will be just as sweet, sweeter to us. We'll be, be married as soon as ever we can. We'll be happy, but there's a devil in me. A perverse, jealous devil. Then I've queer fancies. I forgot for a long time. Now all those fiendish little whispers of doubt and faith and fear and hope come torturing me again. I've got to kill them with the truth. I'll tell you anything you want to know, she replied, frankly. Then, by heaven, we'll have it over and done with. Bess, did Aldring love you? Certainly he did. Did, did you love him? Of course, I told you so. How can you tell it so lightly? cried Venters, passionately. Haven't you any sense of, of... He choked back speech. He felt the rush of pain and passion. He seized her in rude, strong hands and drew her close. He looked straight into her dark blue eyes. They were shadowing with the old wistful light, but they were as clear as the limpid water of the spring. They were earnest, solemn in unutterable love and faith and abnegation. Venter shivered. He knew he was looking into her soul. He knew she could not lie in that moment, but that she might tell the truth, looking at him with those eyes, almost killed his belief in purity. "'What are—what were you to—to to Aldring?' he panted fiercely. "'I am his daughter,' she replied instantly. Venter slowly let go of her. There was a violent break in the force of his feeling, then creeping blankness. "'What was it you said?' he asked in a kind of dull wonder. "'I am his daughter.' "'Aldring's daughter?' queried Venters, with life gathering in his voice. Yes. With a passionately awakening start, he grasped her hands and drew her close. All the time you've been Aldring's daughter? Yes, of course all the time. Always. But, Bess, you told me, you let me think, I made out you were a, so, so ashamed. It is my shame, she said, with voice deep and full, and now the scarlet fired her cheek. I told you, I'm nothing, nameless, just Bess, Aldring's girl. I know, I remember, but I never thought, he went on, hurriedly, huskily. That time, when you lay dying, you prayed, you, somehow I got the idea you were bad. Bad? she asked, with a little laugh. She looked up with a faint smile of bewilderment and the absolute unconsciousness of a child. Venters gasped in the gathering might of the truth. She did not understand his meaning. Bess, Bess! He clasped her in his arms, hiding her eyes against his breast. She must not see his face in that moment. And he held her while he looked out across the valley. In his dim and blinded sight, in the blur of golden light and moving mist, he saw Aldring. She was the rustler's nameless daughter. Aldring had loved her. He had so guarded her, so kept her from women and men and knowledge of life, that her mind was as a child's. That was part of the secret, part of the mystery. That was the wonderful truth. Not only was she not bad, but good, pure, innocent above all innocence in the world, the innocence of lonely girlhood. He saw Aldring's magnificent eyes, inquisitive, searching, softening. He saw them flare in amaze, in gladness, with love, then suddenly strain in terrible effort of will. He heard Aldring whisper, and saw him sway like a log and fall. 
Then a million bellowing, thundering voices, gunshots of conscience, thunderbolts of remorse, dinned horribly in his ears. He had killed Bess's father. Then a rushing wind filled his ears like a moan of wind in the cliffs, a knell indeed, Oldring's knell. He dropped to his knees and hid his face against Bess, and grasped her with the hands of a drowning man. "'My God! My God! Oh, Bess, forgive me! Never mind what I've done, what I've thought. But forgive me. I'll give you my life. I'll live for you. I'll love you. Oh, I do love you as no man ever loved a woman. I want you to know, to remember, that I fought a fight for you, however blind I was. I thought, I thought, never mind what I thought.' "'but I loved you. I asked you to marry me. "'Let that, let me have that to hug to my heart. "'Oh, Bess, I was driven, and I might have known. "'I could not rest nor sleep till I had this mystery solved. "'God, how things work out!' "'Burn, you're weak, trembling. You talk wildly,' cried Bess. "'You've overdone your strength. There's nothing to forgive. "'There's no mystery except your love for me. "'You have come back to me.' and she clasped his head tenderly in her arms, and pressed it closely to her throbbing breast. End of chapter 18